visit the Downtown Den, join us through our website, all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Stay in, stay safe, visit the Downtown Den. First of all, thank you everyone uh, for joining us for our first digital event in Birmingham. It is uh, very odd to say the least. Um, just a quick run through the format today. Um, obviously, we're going to hear from our panellists. Um, there'll be the opportunity for delegates to ask questions towards the end. Um, if you would like to ask a question, you'll notice at the bottom um, on your little bar, um, there is a raise hand function. Um, if you can just raise your hand, um, I'll call out your name and lovely Chris Wilcox will unmute you. Um, and then you'll just be able to ask your questions. So um, after the event, we'll also be sharing everyone's details in an open email, uh, as we typically do with our roundtable events, um, encouraging you all to network and keep business moving forward. Um, if for whatever reason you don't want to be included in that, then just drop me a note, that's fine. Um, so yeah, welcome everyone to the Downtown Den. Uh, it's a place for our members to network during these unprecedented times. Today we're going to welcome our panel. We've got Jenny Loynton, Kim Leary, Chrissy Wolf, and Sarah Grace in the den for our female entrepreneur power panel. Um, we were due to run this at the lovely Gino De Campio restaurant that just opened up in Birmingham, but we're now all in our living rooms instead. Um, so I'm gonna kick off um, by asking the panelists to introduce themselves to us uh, and their organizations currently. So if I can go over to you first, Chrissy Wolf. Yes, hello everybody. Uh, for those who don't know me, I am Chrissy Wolf. I'm a full-time solicitor at Erwin Mitchell, but in 2017 I also founded Law & Broader, which uh, started off life as a YouTube channel and then progressed into events, mentoring, coaching, personal development and brand building. So that's what I do now. Fantastic, thanks Chrissy. Um, if I can go over to you, keeping it legal, Jenny. Right, I'm Jenny Loynton um, and I own Loynton & Co Solicitors, the biggest Chinese law firm in the West Midlands um, and um, our work um, is predominantly um, serving the Chinese community in properties, immigration, uh, private client and uh, recently uh, a taboo subject, uh, preparing and drafting a lot of wills uh, for 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 the Chinese community, which is something that you know is unheard of. Right, thank you. Um, and if we can go over to you, please, Sarah. Yes, hi. Um, my name is Sarah Grace, and I own a company called Kate and Co Recruitment. Um, so the company has been established now for twenty two years. I've been MD for the last four. Um, and we specialise in providing uh, staff in various sectors. So we've got six divisions, which is HR, marketing, business support, finance, manufacturing and engineering, and we're part of the NHS as well. Fab, and last but not least, uh, Kim. Hello, I'm Kim Leary, and I run a design agency called Squibble. Um, predominantly we're web and branding focused. I think at the moment, brands is really coming to the forefront as, as something that companies are generally looking to um, review, refresh, and make sure that their messaging is kind of still in keeping, particularly with the climate that we're in now. So um, yeah, we tend to, to focus on growing really good brands and kind of enabling companies to build um, their, their fan base and their ambassadors. Uh, so that's what we do. 
great. And I think, you know, you're, you're all got really interesting backstories, um, you know, all quite accomplished where you are today as, as entrepreneurs. Um, so I think it'd be really interesting um, to, to understand what you actually did before starting your business. So if I can kick off with you again, Kim, please. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, I started, well, I left, left university in 2008. Um, obviously the markets had, had crashed. Um, I came out of university thinking, I've got all these skills, somebody's bound to employ me, um, I'm going to get onto a graduate scheme, there were no graduate schemes. Um, I'd done work experience with George because I wanted to be a buyer um, in, the, in the fashion industry and I'd gone through a really gruelling interview process, I was convinced that they were going to get me onto the graduate scheme and then I got the phone call and I was stood on like, the hard shoulder of a motorway, my car had broken down <laughs> and they said, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we're, we're not going to offer it to you. So I'm still on the hard shoulder with a car that's head gaskets blown and I've just been told the most devastating news ever. So there was a huge amount of tears. Then I got my car bill, so I cried again. Um, and thought, right, I've got to kind of pick myself up. So hundreds of CVs, applied to loads and loads of design jobs and kind of retail jobs. Um, it just didn't seem to really find, find the role that I wanted. Um, which is why I started at the time it was Kimberly Jane Design. Um, I knew that I needed to build my portfolio. I knew that I needed to get real world experience. So I started designing for friends and family, really. Um, and then my husband said to me, Kim, you've got to make a decision. Like, are you going to freelance? Are you going to start a company? Are you going to continue applying for these jobs? Um, I think deep down he was quite fed up with me <laughs> and he needed, you know, that I needed to make a decision. So I did. Um, and that's when in 2010, I started Kimberly Jane Design. Um, it was just me. I was a sole trader, um, freelancing, but that's kind of where my journey started. And then in 2016, we rebranded as Scribble. Um, main reason for that was because I got my first male employee. And my branding at the time was like pink and just very girly and very feminine. Um, he sat on a pink chair and I just thought, ah, oh, this isn't, this doesn't now represent who we are. So we, we changed the branding um, and it's the story that I've written about quite a bit in the past as well. And downtown was kind of the catalyst for that. Downtown in Birmingham launched and they'd got a black book and the black book was out on display. And I thought, you know, as Kimberly Jane Design, we just won't be in that book. We look too small. We look like sole traders. Um, and so that was the kind of the catalyst for wanting to, to change the name and change the business. Um, everything that we do is still remain the same. We always focus on kind of the core design skills, um, but certainly the messaging had, had changed. Um, so that's kind of a, a roundabout stop of where I've been. I mean, I've worked with... Yeah, kind of been self-employed now for pretty much my whole working career um which i've loved i've, I've really enjoyed it it's been a brilliant journey um but in a nutshell that's that's where i started fantastic oh wow, that's quite roundabout really isn't it wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and sarah can you uh yeah same question to you what, what were you doing before you right uh, were you in the position you are now Right then, so I, I don't think anybody wakes up and says, I want to be a recruiter. Um, and I didn't do that either. Um, so I, saw, I fell into recruitment. So I was studying my A-levels. 
and I decided, well, not out of choice really, but decided that I wasn't going to go to university. My parents just couldn't afford it. Um, and I just thought, you know, try, you know, falling back on them and expecting them to foot out all of this money, it wouldn't have got a grant. So I decided I was going to go and get a job. Um, so I went to recruit for, I went to, I walked into a recruitment company. Um, I went to work at PricewaterhouseCoopers in HR um, and I spent six months there and I absolutely hated every minute of it. Um, and I went back in to register with this recruitment company that got me the job there and I never left. <laughs> Pretty much I walked into reception. They're like, oh, you know, um, you, you're available to work. Why, why don't you stay on here? Um, and the rest is history really. So I spent, I spent eight years um, of my life outside of Kate & Co. Um, and I built up a multi-million pound desk um, at an independent recruitment company. So I was building about a million pounds a year, um, you know, with contractors out all over, just around the West Midlands, out Birmingham. I used to call it my Birmingham. I used to run around Birmingham with CVs back in the day, just going from company to company. Um, and I had a phone call one day. I was, I was quite happy at my old company and I had a phone call from somebody that I knew and respected well in, in the industry, um, a lady called Katie Bard, um, hence Kate and Co. Um, and she explained to me that she was looking to retire um, and she'd got somebody that was looking to buy the business, um, but he didn't have an idea at all about recruitment. He was an entrepreneur, had seven or eight other businesses and wanted to buy Kate and Co and needed somebody that knew recruitment inside out to go into business with him. That was one of the, the pre- um, requisites of him buying the company so I was like no no I'm really really happy where I am and she was quite persistent actually um, and I ended up sort of sitting down with her and my ex-business partner Mike and the rest is history so I came to Kate and Co in 2006 uh, the business was on its knees um, Katie had um, decided that she was going to sell the business and there was a couple of offers on the table um, so she got rid of a load of candidate details and so we read you know we, we were 98 grand in the red um, and we I literally built the business up on my hands and knees <laughs> physically <laughs> on my hands and knees in the office over in Solihull and, and built it over the years to what it is today so um, went through recession never made redundancy um, I've always you know, prided ourselves in treating our, not only our staff really, really well, but the candidates and the clients that, that we work with. Um, and I'm really proud of what we've built. So, you know, we, we supply to some really large corporate organisations and SMEs, um, but we, we try and do it with, you know, with integrity. So, yeah, that, that's me and that's my backstory. Fab. Um, and Jenny, what is it you did before starting your law firm? Yeah, um... I come from Malaysia originally, um, and then at the age of 17, um, I was uh, a scholarship student at home, so I really didn't need to have further education. I would have gone through local education, um, but um, my brother-in-law, who is English, um, said to me, look, my mother is not well. Could you come to England for six months whilst you're waiting for your O-level results? Um, and um, and help her out. So um, so I, I did that. And uh, then when I was in England, uh, it was quite a scary time because you didn't have a mobile phone, you didn't have anything. So you got you know money stashed everywhere, your clothes, you know, just in case something happens. Um, and then um, I met up with Barbara, my brother-in-law's mother, uh, in Stratford upon Avon, and she. Um, and in, whilst I was here in UK, my sister said to me, look, 
rather than you coming home, why don't you just enroll and do A-levels? By which time my results came and, um, and I thought, yeah, okay, because this lady really needed me. She was very depressed and she was ill and she really needed somebody there to cook and to take care of her. So I did that. Um, and then I did two years A-levels in Solihull, Solihull Tech, and went to Liverpool University to study law. Uh, studying law was something that is just fate, I think, because uh, I was a science student and I wanted um, to do a, a course that is the shortest and fastest and cheapest so that I can go back to Malaysia. And um, so I chose law because we're only three years. Went to Liverpool University and then I came out and it's almost like as if my whole path has been set up for me because I went to a golf club and somebody offered me articleship. In those days, they call it articles, so like training contract. Did two years of that in the depths of um, uh, Castle Bromwich. Um, and then after that, having to um, um, finish my two years and say, right, it's time for me to come go back to Malaysia. And that didn't happen because um, the, there's a, a Chinese entrepreneur called Wing Yip and uh, he met me in the store and he said, oh, what are you doing? I said, listen, I only got another few more weeks and I'm going to leave UK and I'm going to go home for the first time. And um, he said to me, oh, you don't want to do that. That, that is wrong. You, you want to open a law firm of your own. I said, oh, no, that's not part of the plan. I'm going home. And uh, but he said, no, go and have a word with your partners. I said, no, they are not my partners. They are my employers. Anyway, one day, this big Mercedes arrived in Casa Bromwich, and there was Mr. Wingit, and he came to the office, and he said to the receptionist, uh, can you get that, that Malaysian girl? And uh, he got me in the car, which was quite frightening in those days, and he said, right, I'm going to show you where your next office is going to be. So I came to Nichols, you know, and it was just when I felt that the riot had been, it was just so bad. And he said, don't worry, I'll be able to set a business center and you have an office here. And uh, so it, um, it transpired. Then he said to me, look, you have to go back to your employers and tell them that you will open a Chinese law firm and I said, yeah, there's a problem. At that time, I could speak a few languages, but not Cantonese. So uh, I said, there is a problem. He said, don't worry, I'll find you a, a Cantonese-speaking boyfriend, and you'll be all right. And I said, no. <clears throat> and he said, look, just have a word with them. Okay, set up a Chinese law firm. And this was in 1990. So it was very, you know, when you think about it, it was a long time ago. So, um, so I went to my partners and I said, uh, I've got to open a Chinese law firm. Either you come with me or I go on my own. And they said, oh, that's a good idea to have a Chinese law firm. Um, so, but I said, if you're going to come with me, you have to make me a partner. So I was a very young partner at the age of 26. I started a law firm. 
at the back of a warehouse, uh, 500 square feet, just myself and the secretary and a receptionist who speak both languages. Within one year, I spoke Cantonese. And then, um, then I went through a few miscarriages and my partners um, wasn't very supportive. Uh, so in um, 2001, I decided that um, whilst, I was, whilst I was in the hospital, they served notice on Mr. Wingate and said, sorry, we don't want the branch office anymore. Um, and then my partners then told me, well, I'm so sorry, you either come back to Castle Bromwich or we have to think something else. And I was so, so shocked uh, because, and I asked them what was the reason. They said, well, in your situation, so many miscarriages and having a small child, we think that you will not be able to uh, bring in the amount of income that you normally bring in. So um, we think it's best that we just consolidate and have just one office. And uh, I was really upset. Um, anyway, I thought, okay, fine. So I stayed at home for three days. And then Mr. Wingip arrived at my house and said, no, you come back to the office. I said, I can't. He said, no, you come back. I put CCTV everywhere. You just run the office. Um, and then I, and that's when Boynton & Co was launched in 2001. And the day the office was open, I just thought it's such a bad omen because I miscarried at the opening ceremony. And I thought, this is, this is so bad. Um, but anyway, things happen and um, I managed to have another child, which was great. And since then we've been loitering co. And uh, so not just uh, dealing with local clients, but we also have international clients, uh, not just Chinese, but a mixture. So a lot of Asian clients, um, but predominantly we speak Cantonese, Mandarin, Malay, uh, Thai. So it's quite a mixture. Mr. Mr. Wingip sounds like a great guy, if I'm honest. Oh, great guy. <laughs> yeah. um, and if I can go over to you now, uh, Chrissy. Yes, so I've got a convoluted backstory as well, but I'll uh, try and condense it and keep it short and sweet. Um, so uh, my dad's from the US and we were kind of moving in between the UK and the US when I was growing up. And um, as a result of kind of all that shifting around, my mum decided to home educate me rather than send me to school because it was going to be quite disruptive to keep pulling me in and out of schools. So I was home educated until I was a teenager. And then at that point, my mum kind of decided she didn't really want to teach me A-level biology, chemistry, physics and maths, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, so I went to school at that point. Um, but I found that change really disruptive in terms of complete change to just my academic structure, how I was learning, going from like a one-on-one -on -one environment with my mum to then going into like a state school with a cl like massive class of kids, teacher at the front, just totally alien to me. So basically as a result of that, my academic suffered massively having done pretty well up until that point, just took a massive nosedive at A-level. Uh, I had great plans of being a vet actually, that was what I really wanted to do, but you need really, really sterling academics to get into vet school and I was just nowhere near that level. So. 
I decided that I was going to try and go back way and do uh, a degree in animal biology, which required slightly lower grades, um, <clears throat> and then kind of do maybe convert later on or try and credit some of those years towards a vet degree. Um, but still struggled to get into biology because I still miss the grades to get into animal biology by some miles. Um, so I kind of had to bully Birmingham Uni into letting me know. I'm not from Birmingham. I'm from the South, actually, from just outside of London. But I just fell in love with Birmingham when I went to visit the university. And I was determined that I was going to go to Birmingham, even though I got I, I was still offered my kind of like last two choices, I think, on my UCAS form. I could have got into those universities. but I really, really wanted to go to Birmingham, but I missed the grades for biology. So I basically rang around loads of different departments, anybody whose number I could find uh, on the internet at Birmingham University to see if they would let me in. And eventually I found a nice woman in the chemistry department who took pity on me and said, well, what we could offer you is we could offer you a foundation course in chemistry, which was not really what I wanted to hear at all. I probably would have rather done a course in anything else other than chemistry. But at that point, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I was just pleased that someone was going to let me in. So I ended up doing that foundation year in chemistry. And what they said to me was basically, if you get first in that foundation year, you can then, you can then go into the animal biology course and from first year. It was kind of like a bit of an unknown loophole. They were basically like, once you're in the system, you've got a much better chance of being able to get into the degree program than you would if you just went in cold effectively. So I did my foundation year. I did get a first. And then I managed to transfer on to my animal biology program. So, uh, so I was at four years at uni in total. And up until kind of the last year, I think I still intended to do vet school. But then after I'd been at uni for four years and I looked into converting to vet school, um, they basically still said you're going to have to do another four years at least because vet school is a six-year course and I could only knock off a couple of those years with an undergraduate degree and I just thought I just don't know if I can hack another four years at this stage I just kind of want to get on with it so I went to see my careers advisor and said I, I don't know what to do I've always had these plans of being a vet I just don't know what else to do so I sat down with him and he kind of looked at possible career paths what a lot of people do with my degree and funnily enough I think after research which I didn't want to do and teaching which I also didn't want to do the third most common career path with a science degree was going into law which I'd never thought of actually before then so I'm not like a die-hard born lawyer at all I'm the opposite of that um, so then I sort of did some work experience at different types of firms in different industries because I kind of always thought of law as kind of like paperwork and big stuffy offices and corporates and it just wasn't for me I wanted to be a horse vet which couldn't be more different from what I thought of as as a lawyer um, so I kind of did a few different types of law a few different types of firms and found that I really liked the kind of medical side of things because it tied in a lot with my sciences and what I'd done at university so I decided that I was you know, quite keen on doing this law degree and I really wanted to go into the kind of medical personal injury side of things so decided that's what I was going to do so did my law conversion course and then started, well, started applying for what, what training contracts before then, because when you go into law, you have to get kind of what they, what's called a training contract, which is like a two year apprenticeship, basically. And they recruit a couple of years in advance. So I needed to start applying ASAP, basically, from when I decided I was going to do law and was met with the same situation I'd been in a few years before in terms of my A-levels, because law is a super academic career. Um, and I still had bad A-levels, even though I now had a 2-1 um, in biology. 
So was kind of disheartened again by this whole thing. Thought I was over that. Thought I'd dealt with my A-levels. Now I had a good degree. Um, but they came back to bite me again. So I had a really tough time getting a training contract, really, and just faced loads and loads of rejections um, for the first couple of years. And then eventually did secure one um, with Airway Mitchell. And then as, pretty much as soon as I got my training contracts, I really wanted to kind of feed back to other people who were going through this horrendous process of applying for training contracts because it's so competitive and there are many, many more. I think the stats are like 300 to one. There's like 300 people applying for every one training contract available. So there's lots of people getting rejected. And I started mentoring people pretty much straight away at University of Law, which is where I'd studied my law conversion. Um, did loads of mentoring, um, but then kind of during my training contract, was really kind of struggling for time to mentor. I, I only had about three or four mentees, which is how many I thought was reasonable whilst juggling my day job as well. I really wanted to do more of that. And a good friend of mine was a YouTuber. I mean, something completely different. She YouTubes about Disney. And, and YouTube was kind of a platform that was mainly to my knowledge used at that stage for like fashion and beauty and I generally thought the target market was kind of a bit younger I'd never really seen it used as like a professional or an educational resource so when she said oh you should get on YouTube I thought no you know that's just you know that's just not that's not for me that's not for what I want to do but then I kind of thought about it and thought well I want to do more mentoring there's a platform here she had something like 25,000 subscribers or something and I was thinking well if I could kind of tap into that resource I could potentially mentor thousands of people I could use that as a kind of online mentoring platform so when I qualified just I actually started it I qualified in 2015 started looking into this in 2016 and started kind of shooting videos um, but didn't post anything and then eventually decided I was just going to have to launch in 2017 I was going to have to give this a go uh, so I started it in 2017 um, just started shooting videos about like offering help and application advice um, and sort of interview tips commercial awareness updates like things that I would have basically appreciated when I was going through the process I didn't think there was a lot of information out there about and then it, it was a very it was very slow to get off the ground because it wasn't a market that really existed. I'd never seen any lawyers using the YouTube platform or anything like that. Um, so it was slow growing. It was kind of like, it spent, it spent a long time shooting videos, like hours shooting and editing to get like a handful of views, had to face a few trolls, people kind of saying, you know, you've only got like 50 views, you know, this is like a, a stone's throw away from talking to yourself. <laughs> the usual online abuse that you face. Um, but I kept going with it and I said, I'm going to do it for a year because I know it's going to be a slow grower because it's not really a market that exists. And if I've got no traction after a year, then I'm just going to say that was a fun experiment. Didn't work. Fine. And then about six months in uh, a legal publication kind of stumbled across it and printed an article about it. And overnight, I think I went from something like 200 subscribers to over a thousand in literally a period of two or three days, just because it got some exposure from this, from this publication. And all of a sudden it kind of just went, went from there really, um, which was great. And then there was kind of demand for other things, demand for kind of one-on-one -on -one mentoring, coaching, the kind of whole YouTube thing grew into a bit of a brand and people wanted were interested in how I built that. It then kind of morphed into events because it made sense to get other people onto the YouTube channel. So people had speak, so like my mentees could have other people's perspectives rather than just mine. So the natural progression was into events where people could hear from a number of different people within the industry. And that's kind of where it is now. Um, so I, it's mainly for the benefit of aspiring lawyers, but I also 
use I also do coaching for universities barrister chambers other solicitors firms for use of social media because it's kind of grown across all platforms now so YouTube Twitter um, Instagram I've even just joined TikTok <laughs> um, so yeah I do do kind of courses for businesses as well about use of social media and kind of individuals about how to build a personal brand so that's kind of where it is now I guess yeah and alongside still working as a full-time solicitor at IM so uh, it's a fun it's a fun balance <laughs> Great, thank you, Chrissy. Um, that sort of brings me on to my next question, actually. Um, I mean, I think there's this image that everyone has of entrepreneurs sort of walk, working around the clock and spinning lots of plates. So I think I'll go straight back to you, Chrissy, and ask, um, you know, how has being an entrepreneur affected your work-life balance? Yeah, well, I think working full time and also running your own business is, is interesting. But I think, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but when you do something you really love, it doesn't feel like work. So I absolutely love shooting videos and inter and mentoring and hosting the event. So that it doesn't really feel like work. Some of the editing sometimes feels like work. And when I'm up until like two, three in the morning doing my editing, I do get a bit jaded by it. Um, but kind of the fundamentals of what I do, I enjoy so much. And I have kind of the broader side of the B in LAB, which is kind of a bit of lifestyle as well. So that kind of gives me the opportunity to go to events and restaurants and things and kind of claim it as work as long as I shoot a video. <laughs> so I find that it does, like it kind of fits into my work life balance quite well because you know I, I really I really enjoy that side of it so that kind of feels like it still feels like I'm living life and it's not just a job I think um so it, it does it does fit in but it, it's a lot of late nights and a lot a lot of work I, I'm, yeah I'm not saying it's not a lot of work but I just enjoy it so I don't I don't feel like it's a burden too much um, but yeah, it, it is a tough one. I think you've just got to have a really a strict routine. You know, I always do my blogging on a Sunday, like come what may, I'm up on a Sunday doing my editing. And I think I've just got into that routine now where I just have strict times where I do everything because otherwise nothing would ever get done if I just kind of let it flow organically. The days would just all roll into one, I think. So I've got to be quite disciplined about when I do my day job and when I'm doing my mentoring, when I'm doing my videos, when I'm doing my social media posts and just try and keep in a strict routine so that it doesn't all just get out of control um but yeah i do always allow a bit of time in there for for some free time and to kind of hang out with my friends and otherwise you know i think if i didn't do that i would i would soon hate it if all i did was do my day job and then do my editing so i make sure i weave in some some balance there for me as well uh, and jenny do you think you maintain a good work-life balance um well it is difficult i mean i'm I'm a wife, mother of two girls, um, a deputy lieutenant for the West Midlands for the last 10 years, um, running my own business. Um, so there are many roles that I take. Um, but, you know, I feel that I have to give something back to the community because, you know, England has been so, so fantastic to me. I have never felt any discrimination when I walk into the courts, when I'm dealing with cases, when I'm talking to people, um, and in the role of representing the Queen in the West Midlands, nobody has said to me, well, you're not English, you're not, you're not British, so why are you taking this role? But it's important because it's Commonwealth, it's, it's a representation. With my children, 
uh, obviously, as they were growing up, um, it was tough. I had to have nannies. I wouldn't. I didn't want to give up my career, uh, and I couldn't anyway. Um, lucky and luckily enough, I have a good husband, and um, so so life was okay with the help of nanny and also i have my family who comes in every six months to take care of my children so that was important because i felt they was important they understand my culture so for a long time my children have mixed with chinese malay indian uh, thai people whom who i meet through work and also as people who have come to live in this country but it's not until a year ago when I invited six of my friends to come and stay at my house for a weekend, that my children actually said, mommy, you have six English friends. So it was slightly different, but the work-life balance is great. I work very hard. I have to fill in the 12 hours that I am at work with all sorts of, of things, but it's okay. I don't think my children have suffered. Um, they are very balanced, and um, and I think that you know, with with good schooling and with family support, the those kids are, are okay. I I think they are all right. Uh, but you know, working hard is not a problem. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed my role for the community. I've enjoyed my role here. The worst thing of all, being an entrepreneur, is having to manage your staff, um, the worry about finance, and, and that sometimes gives you sleepless nights. But it's okay. I think if you have faith and you have your religion behind you, uh, that seems okay. You've got someone to talk to. Yeah, and Kim, what about yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the 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 kind of the hardest thing for me is still having two very young children um one is four and one's 20 months old so right now my working day starts when they go to bed at seven o'clock at night <laughs> so do i have a good work-life balance at the moment no <laughs> um but generally yes i mean i work really hard to to say no to things and to not try and cram everything in and to not do everything um so things that I enjoy and know that other people will get benefit out of, I'll always say yes to. Um, but for, for me and for my team and for the culture of Scribble, we work really, really hard to make sure we do have a good, a good work-life balance. Um, if that means going to the hairdressers at lunchtime, then I do it. <laughs> and I tell the team that I'm going and I say the same thing to them. You know, it's, there are only so many hours in the day. And particularly because we're a, you know, a leaner team, I don't think... I think it's easier for us to be more open and honest about things. Um, so we kind of use that to our, to our advantage. Um, but yeah, I think at the moment it's a very different situation. There, I mean, I was working all over the weekend because there aren't enough hours in the day at the moment, kind of faced with homeschooling, which is interesting. And I remember all of my struggles. And so I look at her, I think she's four. But at the same time, I've seen how much she's grown in the last couple of weeks and the confidence that she's got in her work is just, it's incredible to see. Um, but normally, you know, when I'm kind of 
at work, I still take Fridays off. I'm still at home on Fridays um, because I still feel it's important that I do have some kind of presence with, with the kids because it would be very easy to just work, you know, 24 seven, um, particularly when there's, there's just always lots of kind of exciting conversations to have. And I think with um, Birmingham Tech Week, which I'm now chair of, again, it's another, it's another level of, of work. Um, but I see the benefit. There's a lady who came to one of the events during Birmingham Tech Week from London and has since moved to Birmingham. Like that's, we just couldn't ask for anything better. I think it's, it's brilliant to see things like that. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not always work, um, but it, it certainly is very difficult to try and, try and always have that balance. Um, it's something that has to be worked at. Um, Great, and Sarah? Yeah, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I, I spend most of my my working life talking to clients about how to strike up the balance. You know, I mean, I've got two two little girls. I've got a seven year old and a ten year old. You know, I'm I'm really really fortunate that you know we've created a culture at Kate and Co where family is one of our values. Um, so you know, I mean, I I work from home on a Monday. Um, and I encourage the guys to do the same. So everybody works from home one day a week. You know, we've got a very, very flexible um, policy in place in terms of, you know, you should be able to work when you want, where you want, how you want. Um, you know, and I do think that it affects you know it, it's it's good for people's mental well-being so do I think I've got it spot on no because there's always something to do um you know I mean I am on my emails all the time you know I, I you never completely switch off but you know Kate and Co is a labour of love for me so it's not actually going to work you know it's 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 next it's extended family I mean my husband says to me why do you can't wheel out the door every day you can't be that happy to go to work but you know I'm incredibly lucky because I get to do the school run a couple of times a week and you know my, my children are incredibly important to me I wouldn't do this with you know for any other reason than, than you know making sure that they're happy but I think I think you can be a victim of not saying no enough um, and I think you do have to be really really disciplined because you can fill your time from morning noon at night you can fill your time there's always somebody that you can be talking to there's always something that needs to be done um, you know I'm, I'm incredibly lucky that I've got an amazing team and they you know that they're constantly supporting me so you know if it's a mandela on the school run or something needs to be done there's always somebody that will that will support me and pick up so i think it is it is important to be surrounded by like-minded people um and especially you know i mean you know when when i'm recruiting for my business for my business you know our work-life balance that we can offer you know recruitment is is renowned for people working from six in the morning till 10 of a night you know um there's, there's companies out there where they're working hours their standard working hours are 7 30 till 6 which for me that is too much i feel like it's too much because you can fill your time with with the wrong things you know our standard core hours are nine to five which is unheard of you know in recruitment um but if you if you choose to do the right things you know and the effective things then you know you can fit in as you know you can fit in as much as somebody not working effectively in, in you know all hours of every day so i think it is important and i think you do you know you should be able to switch off but i think you know that that's due to being happy in your job and loving what you do so I think I've gone, I'm, I'll get there. I could do more to have a better work-life balance, but I'm quite conscious of it. 
Right, and I think we're going to see, just time conscious, if any of our delegates have any questions. Um, so delegates, there is an option just at the bottom of your screen where you can raise your hand. Oh, um, Adam Rebel's got a question. If I just get my colleague to unmute you. Bear with me. Yeah, you should be able to ask your question, Adam. Hi there, everybody. Hi, uh, hi Adam. Hi. Um, so it's really interesting listening to all of you at the moment because I operate as a non-exec finance director or as an executive finance director. And sorry, I joined quite early in the conversation and heard you talking about the furloughing uh, going on at the moment. Um, maybe some of the other delegates didn't hear, but could, would you mind sharing some of your stories around the ongoing furloughing and if any of you have applied to the small uh, business grants that are ongoing? Because I think as you highlighted, the finance is a sleepless element for many at the moment. And if you've got any tips to share, I think those would be very helpful to people at, the, at this current time. Shall I, can I, shall I pick up on that, guys? Are you happy for me? Um, I mean, I have lived and breathed the word furlough <laughs> um, for the past few weeks. Um, it's something that I've done personally with my staff. So I furloughed 17 um, um, and I've still got a core element of my staff working. Um, they've been quite receptive to that and quite grateful um, because recruitment is something when, when you know when the chips are down recruitment gets put on hold so you know I had nearly every one of my permanent vacancies pulled you know over the, over the last couple of weeks put on hold and you know there's uncertainty around that and um, I've got the added um, layer let's say um, where we've got a temporary workforce so furlough applies to them also um, and because there's so much uncertainty out there at the moment we are literally going minute to minute um you know there's questions around holiday pay does it still accrue um, as you are furloughed and the answer i believe from a legal call that i had yesterday is the answer is yes so so um people still accrue holiday while they are furloughed which then throws the the the, the question what happens after all of this has died down because technically people have got to have a, a load of annual leave to use um, in and then they're gonna to have to condense it into the into, you know into a, a short period of time when we potentially need our staff actually in the business and trying to get out of this out of the um, out of the dip ready for the bounce um, so the, there's questions you know around that I've heard companies that are insisting that people take annual leave during furlough which I also believe uh, you know is not allowed that that's sort of been ironed out over the last couple of days that that you know you can't actually do that and um, because they are furloughed um so you know we are literally providing help and support from um, you know my, me and my team we're just speaking to our clients and our candidates daily I've had I've had temporary workers on the phone crying because you know the access to these funds um, you know, we're waiting, waiting for HMRC to set up the, the, the portal so we can we can get access to this money. So if a, if a client isn't prepared to pay that money up front before we can claim it back, you know, I've got there's the temporary workforce out there um, that has no access to any of this money. So it's it's a real, real hot topic at the moment. It's, it's unprecedented. Um, and we are just literally waiting, you know, for, for every bit of of news on the white papers that we can possibly get and just you know passing that on so yeah it's it's a bit of a working pro process um at the moment um but yeah it just it just keeps on moving 
Oh, can, and I, can I oh, ask, sorry. are any of you actually thinking of taking furlough as directors now, now that it's been clarified that directors can continue to operate statutory requirements? Um, as, as you've highlighted there, you've got to deal with your temporary workforce. That's yeah. not necessarily bringing in new revenue. No. Um, so are you actually thinking of furloughing yourselves as well? Um, we we won't be doing that. So myself and my fellow directors, we're, we're not going to be taking that option. Um, you know, and, and that's a business decision that we have made. But I do have other you know friends that own recruit, recruitment companies out there that are um, going to furlough themselves because their industries have been particularly particularly affected. I mean, you know, the reason you know we've got six divisions. Two of my divisions are incredibly busy, but the other four aren't. Hence the reason why we furloughed um, you know a number of the team and not the others. Um, so it won't be something that I'm that we're doing at Kate and Co. Um, but I do believe there are directors out there that are, that are taking up that option. I think it's a really difficult balance because my biggest concern is how, as an economy, we are able to fund all this afterwards. And so I think directors have got to make um, conscious decisions about whether or not they are able to fund themselves and their staff during this period. How long they can do that for? Um, and when they do really need that funding to be able to access it. So I'm personally, I'm not going to furlough myself and haven't furloughed the team because we're still working on projects. So I, for me at the moment, it's not the right time. But I'm also very conscious that there is so much, um, there's so much funding available, um, albeit it's kind of a little bit difficult to get to at the moment. But my biggest concern and my biggest worry is how we fund it afterwards. Where is the money coming from now? And, and how we're paying it back. Um, yeah, no, one of my companies is a brokerage firm and generally we would always advise clients to, if they are able to get their hands on some additional cash flow to do so. Mm. But this is a different scenario where those individuals are generally directors and shareholders of the business. And at the moment, they're, even if they take the furloughing, they're only getting 80% of their salary. And therefore, as you say, in the greater economy at the moment, mm those are the individuals who may well have to fork, fork the bill for this because dividends, taxes, et cetera, will be reviewed. Yeah. Um, the taxes that are at the lowest and haven't been reviewed for some time. So I'm glad you raised that, Kim, because that, that's exactly the sort of thinking that my brokerage company is having to think very differently about advising clients on cash flow at the moment and actually not taking every penny, only what you need. Um, have we got any other questions from our participants at all you can raise the little hand function on the side or you can just pop something in the chat box um i think that's a no um so i just want to say um yeah no thank you so much to our panel to um for today um i think it's been really interesting to hear from you ladies i think it's been really great to actually you know talk about business and not really focus too much on you know the unfortunate pandemic that we find ourselves in at the moment um a sort of a, a closing um do you have sort of a parting pearl of wisdom or or anything that you can share with any following um aspiring entrepreneurs um can i go to you jenny um the only thing i can say is that uh sometimes it's important to know when to stop talking and when to listen. Um, and in a, a cultural thing in, in Chinese community and in the Asian community, it is important uh, not to answer back. 
So it's always good to sit back, smile, think about it, and then maybe find another time to answer the question. So it's good to be thoughtful. Great, and uh, Chrissy? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I think you've got to have a you've got to have a thick skin, particularly if you're perhaps trying to set something up that's a non-traditional business. You're going to get a lot of people saying that'll never work. Why are you wasting your money on that? And uh, for the first couple of years, you'll probably think they're exactly right. <laughs> so you know you've, you've got to you've got to back yourself and be prepared that you're going to come under kind of skepticism and criticism. But you know, have faith in in what you're doing. Um, but on the flip side of that, I think also have mentors around you who you trust and you do listen to if they give you advice and they do say perhaps that's risky or perhaps you should look at doing something instead of that. You have people around you who you, you genuinely do trust to give you the right advice as well. And perhaps people in who have had lots of different careers, lots of different walks of life. I like getting lots of different people's opinions on things, you know, ranging from people who are much more junior to me to much more senior than me you know, in different countries, in different industries, I think, and it, everybody's got something to give. So get yourself a good kind of mentor support system and yeah, just, just continue to back yourself. Um, Sarah? I just, you've got to be really tenacious. So just echoing, you know, um, what you've just said, Christina, um, you've got to be thick skinned, you know, and if you believe in something, you know so passionately which you know I, I do believe that that I could say all four of us do um you've got to go with it and just never give up you know and just speak to as many people as you possibly can and you know ho hopefully you, your passion and your tenacity comes through um you know so yeah I would I would say you do have to be tenacious and you do have to be thick-skinned if you are going to go into business and anything from you Kim um, at the moment, I'm being approached by lots of people who are looking to start up um, and all I am saying is focus on the purpose, focus on, on the why. Um, as soon as you can understand that and can detail it and can respond quickly and say, this is why I'm doing it, look at the who, who are you doing it for? And then most importantly, look at the why. Why are you looking to help people? Why do you want to start the, the business? What's the purpose of it? Um, and I think once you've kind of nailed all of those, you've got a really good proposition. Um, particularly in this, in this kind of scenario right now, you need messaging that's going to really cut through and, and build that emotional hook. Um, there's lots of people who are feeling different pain points. And so if you can tap into how they're feeling and really build on, on that emotional connection, you've got a really good standing. Um, and it's certainly a lot of questions that I'm kind of being asked at, at the moment in how to generate a brand in in this in this atmosphere so i think for me it's it's all about purpose and being clear on what the purpose of the company will be right um and just one comment that i picked up actually from a man um just going back to um adam's questions about um furloughing and and apparently um you can agree with staff that they can take annual leave so that's worth looking into for mm -hmm. anyone who's um sort of um looked into that i thought i'd mentioned that but no thank you all so much for today um we really appreciated it it's been great to hear from you and hopefully you know we will get to do this in the flesh at some point you know, a bit better catered maybe with a glass of wine <laughs> well abby you've done really well thank, thank you yeah, thanks for hosting all yeah, together it's so nice to know all of you
Yeah, really nice to meet you all, guys. Great. Take care, everyone. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.